Let us then for a short time together this morning return to the portion of God's word that we read together from the book of Genesis and chapter 18. We may take as our reference text words that you will find in verse 22. And the men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom, particularly these verses, these words, but Abraham stood yet before the Lord. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. These words, as the Spirit of the Lord would be pleased to help us. The title we give to our sermon this morning is Abraham Fulfilling Christian Duties. Abraham Fulfilling Christian Duties. The events that we have recorded for us in this chapter takes place a relatively short time after the institution of circumcision that we have recorded for us at the end of chapter 17. This painful ceremony that Abraham, in obedience to God, carried out and fulfilled with the urgency and perhaps as a reward for his obedience and his faithfulness, we find now that the Lord blesses Abraham with a visitation. For we are in no doubt that these three men that Abraham entertained are two holy angels and none other than the angel of the covenant himself. Our text gives us warrant to believe that Abraham stood yet before the Lord. And here we see Abraham fulfilling what Paul recorded in the epistle to the Hebrews. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers unawares, thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And at the beginning of chapter 17, when God visits Abraham to instruct him to carry out this sign and seal of the covenant blessings in the painful ceremony of circumcision, God comes to Abraham in his holy majesty and his holy awe because we read that Abraham fell on his face. He was overcome with reverence and the holiness and the wonder of God ordaining to visit him. But here, the mood is slightly different. There is a more personal feel, a more familiar, a more intimate account is given of the Lord's dealing with Abraham as the angel of the covenant in human form, not coming in human nature, but coming in human form, what we call a Christophany or a Theophany. Abraham, of course, is the friend of God. He is the father of the faithful. And it's interesting to note that that title, the friend of God, was not one that Abraham took to himself. God gave him the title, the friend of God, Isaiah 41, verse 8. But thou, Israel, art my servant, the seed of Abraham, my friend. So he is the father of the faithful. He is the friend of God. But he executes and demonstrates his faithfulness 
in practical ways. Abraham's faith is not theoretical. It's not theological. It's not kept hidden and private. Abraham demonstrates his faith in duty, in serving, in fulfilling all the obligations that God places upon him. And I would suggest to you that there are four things, four duties in this chapter that Abraham exemplifies and gives us a model to follow because if we are the seed of Abraham after the spirit, not after the flesh as the Jews, but if we are of the faith of Abraham, the same faith that Abraham had, we will be keen to execute these Christian duties that Abraham demonstrates for us. So let's then consider four Christian duties that the father of the faithful gives to those who share the same faith as Abraham. The first I would suggest to you is the duty of serving. Verses 1 to 8. The duty of serving. The Christian should have a servant spirit. We see that, of course, in Abraham. It is exemplified for us in Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. So here at the beginning of this chapter, we see Abraham entertaining strangers and thereby entertaining angels unawares. The cultures and customs in the Near East for entertaining were and remain very different to our own day. But the principle is the same. The principle of kindness, the principle of hospitality, the principle of giving your best, as Peter tells us, use hospitality one to another without grudging, without grumbling, without murmuring. So surely Abraham gives us an outstanding example of this Christian duty. Now, we're not sure at what point Abraham realizes that he is in the presence of the angel of the covenant. He is in the presence of Christ himself. Perhaps it was when the Lord himself there in verse 9, verse nine revealed that he, had, he was intimately acquainted with his family. Where is Sarah, thy wife? How did he know the name of Abraham's wife? Perhaps it was because, as the friend of God and the father of the faithful, Abraham sensed that he was in the presence of no mere normal travelers, but that he was in the presence of the Lord himself. However it was, he shows that he entertains these visitors without limitation, without restraint, without holding anything back. We see there in verse 2, his, his first greeting is to bow. The customary Near Eastern bow, particularly if you sense that the visitor to your tent, the visitor to your home was of a higher status. You would show your humility in bowing as low as you can, the lower you could bow. You were demonstrating that you recognized that this visitor was of a higher status. And the most basic aspect of serving was providing a meal. 
It was regarded as, and still is, the most honorable thing that you can do with guests who come to your home is to provide them with food. To show that you think your guests think you worthy of providing them with hospitality. We think the other way, don't we? If someone invites us to their home, we, we think we're quite important. But in the Near East, the importance falls on the host in order to provide the best meal that they possibly could. Your whole reputation was on the line. How does Abraham serve these three guests? Well, the first thing we see is that he does it himself. We are told that Abraham had 318 servants, chapter 14 tells us. But he took this on himself. This was a personal serving. He was going to lavish hospitality upon these guests. It wasn't inconvenient. He wasn't too tired. It wasn't beneath him. It was a joy. It was a privilege to serve these guests. And in so doing, he served the Lord Christ himself. Look how he did it. Verse 3, he constrained them to turn. And this wasn't a half-hearted service. Verse 2, he ran. Verse 5, he fetched. He hastened. He ran to the herd. He fetched. He hasted. This was a priority. This wasn't someone just doing the minimum. He had help from Sarah making the bread. He had help from the man in verse 7, perhaps the butcher, who would slay this young kid and dress the meat. But what we have here is a picture of Abraham's commitment. It's a nasty word nowadays. In the old days, the Lord's people were committed. Nowadays, they're a bit lightweight. Don't want to commit to a congregation. Don't want to commit to denomination. Don't want to commit to this man. We won't listen to this man. We won't listen to that man. Abraham was committed to serving Christ. And he would do it himself. We brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out. So by way of application, how many of us are serving Christ in our own corners the same way that Abraham served these two angels and the angel of the covenant? Is it inconveniencing us to be Christians? Or are we serving Christ with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength? Are we demonstrating our faith in Christ practically by serving him, by serving others? Do we have that servant spirit? I was told of a, an old Christian lady who was renowned on this island for our hospitality, even although she didn't much, no one would pass the house. 
without being given something. And when our children said to her, Mum, you're, you're giving everything away. She said, everything I have and all your inheritance is in the belly of the Lord's people. She was serving Christ and she did it diligently. So it's a question for us. Are we fulfilling this Christian duty of serving? The second Christian duty I would suggest to you in verses 9 to 15 is the duty of listening. The Christian has a duty to listen, to primarily listen to what the Lord God speaks through his word, but to listen to what they are being taught. And a diligent, organized, generous host, as Abraham was, will always be attentive to the needs of their guests. Why? Because you can serve them best if you're listening out to what their needs are. The host will listen intently for any requests that come from the guests. Why? Because it makes serving more informed. You're not guessing. It's intelligence-led because you're listening to what your guests are saying and you're responding to their needs. Abraham listened intently. He was the friend of God. He was the father of the faithful. He listened to the angel of the covenant. Look there in verse 8. We're told, after he had provided this meal, this wonderful meal that Abraham had provided, he stood by them under the tree and they did eat. There was no over-familiarity here. He didn't sidle alongside them and squeeze himself in. He was standing by, ready to listen, to respond to their needs. So that when they asked him something, he was immediately at their disposal, immediately able to respond. Again, we see it wasn't inconvenient for him. He may have been tired, rushing and back, backwards and forwards to the herd, preparing the meal. He didn't disappear. He didn't go for a lie down. He didn't shirk his duties. He didn't become distracted. He didn't lose interest. There wasn't something more important that he had to attend to. So in verse 9, when they say, where is Sarah thy wife? He's there listening, ready to respond. He was right at hand. And hearing these heavenly visitors asking him the name of his family, where is Sarah thy wife? Surely that's the realization that Abraham and his mind that this was in fact the angel of the covenant. And what's he listening to? He's listening to there in verse 10, the repetition of the covenant promises. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah, thy wife shall have a son. There's the promise of the covenant that Abraham's seed would be as the sand on the seashore innumerable. He was listening out for the covenant promises. He was receiving the information from Christ himself. He was digesting it. He was 
pondering it. He was analyzing it. And what does hearing promises do? It encourages. Because he was fully listening, fully attuned, he is encouraged because he hears the reminder of the covenant promises that the Lord has made to him for the last 70 years. Sarah heard too, but she laughed. She laughed rather incredulously, rather dismissively in unbelief that brought that rebuke that we have there in verse 13. Wherefore did Sarah laugh? And in verse 15, nay, but thou didst laugh. You see, Sarah tries to lie her way out of this predicament that she has found herself in. Abraham rejoiced. We're told that in chapter 17. Abraham rejoiced to hear this. But if Sarah had listened properly, if Sarah had been listening to all the covenant promises, there would have been no derisory laughter. She would have rejoiced like Abraham. What was the most wonderful thing that Abraham listened to? Verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? What a wonderful promise to listen to. Is there any needing that promise this morning in a sore providence, in difficult circumstances, to listen to God's word say to you, is anything too hard? For the Lord? Can we take that promise to the Lord in our prayers? Lord, thou hast said in thy word, nothing is too hard for thee. I heard it. I listened to it. And now I'm pleading it to thee. You see, that's why the Christian has a duty to be an active listener. And there's, of course, a difference between hearing and listening. We might say that hearing is passive. You can hear things, and they can sweep over you. And perhaps many do. Perhaps many under the preaching of the gospel just hear it. And it just sweeps over them. Listening requires active participation. Listening requires energy being expended. I'm going to listen. And more importantly, once I've listened, I'm going to apply what I've heard from God's word. Let us ensure whenever we hear God's word preached, whenever we read God's word, that we listen to it and that we act upon it, that we are not hearers only, but that we are doers of his word. The duty of serving, the duty of listening, and thirdly, the duty of holy living. Verses March 16 to 22, where, where do we get the duty of holy living, you might ask? Well, serving God, surely. 
is part of holy living. Listening to God is part of holy living. But there's more to it than this. We see in verse 16, when the angels, the angel of the covenant, rise from this wonderful meal and resolve to go towards Sodom, we see Abraham's reluctance to let them go. He has enjoyed their company. He has enjoyed their fellowship. And so he goes with them. He goes with them in respect. He's clinging on to this intimate communion that he had with the angel of the covenant for as long as possible. This holy experience, this holy blessing that he had, his desire is to spend every single second he, that he could with Jesus Christ. That in itself surely is a mark of holy living. You can't live a holy life if Christ means nothing to you. If you live distant from him, if you live separate from him, if you try, as Lot did, to live as close to Sodom as possible. So Christ, in this theophany, bestows a great honor on his friend, on the friend of God, because he shares his divine purpose to destroy Sodom for its vile wickedness. Abraham is a friend of God. God is his chiefest joy. We sang that in Psalm 25, didn't we? The fear, the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. Those who are holy, who have a holy fear and a holy reverence. Those who live closest to the Lord will know most about God's counsel, most about God's word, most about God's revelation. They will have a, a love for holy things. They will seek to be in the world, but not of the world. But how do we know that Abraham lived a holy life? Well, just as we are told in Isaiah that God gave Abraham the title friend of God. So we are told in verse 19 that God took note of Abraham's holy living. For I know him. What a commendation from God. I know Abraham. My friend, the father of the faithful, this holy man, I know him. What do I know about him? He will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. But the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. So here's an example of what Abraham's holy living consisted of. He was a holy example to his family, to all those round about him. And God took particular knowledge of it. He taught his children in the ways of the Lord. He had a vast household of over 300 servants. And the Lord took note that Abraham was a holy example to them. His religious observance 
his fulfillment of circumcision to all his household. He craves the Lord's spiritual blessing for him and his family. He delights in the company of the Lord. He doesn't want the Lord to leave him. He wants the Lord's blessing on his children's children and future generations. And because of this holy living, he hears, he listens to another promise at the verse of, end of verse 18, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken, the covenant promises. Because Abraham is faithful, because he is obedient, because he is living a holy life, I can fulfill my promises. The covenant principles, isn't it? The fundamental covenant principle. Obedience brings blessings. Disobedience brings curses. And the words of our text in verse 22, surely it sums it up. Abraham stood yet before the Lord. How many of us look at our watches during the public worship? How many of us are looking for that hour and 15 minutes? The minister's going on a bit. Or do we have this passion, this desire? As the men in the road to Emmaus, all come in with us. A holy man living a holy life, living a holy, desiring rather a holy communion with God. What an example. As Christ sees us this day in the worship of his name, how many of us would have this commendation? Oh, for I, for I know him. For I know her. She's a holy woman. He's a holy man living a holy life in the midst and the environs of Sodom? It's a challenging question. I ask it myself. Is Jesus Christ preeminent in our lives? For in all things he must have preeminence. For all, in all things he will have preeminence. Or do we let him slip through our fingers so very, very easily? We should be like the spouse in the Song of Solomon, searching in the streets. I found him, and I will not let him go. We're not saying it's easy to live a holy life in a secular society where abomination is practiced more and more. But let us today, and if we're spared for tomorrow, wake up thinking, the Lord looking upon my life, does he say, I know him. I approve of their holy living. And when men and women in the world look upon us, is the first thing that they notice our holiness. Oh, we want to be kind. We want to be friendly. We want to be hospitable. We want to serve the community. Of course, we want to do all these things. But is the first thing that they notice, oh, that's a holy woman. What a godly man. There was dozens of them in past generations. You know them perhaps better than me in the communities that you grew up with. 
you knew the houses where the holy men and the holy women went, and people flocked to them. The duty of serving, the duty of listening, the duty of holy living. Fourthly and finally, verses 23 to the end, the duty of interceding. The duty of the Christian to intercede for the sinner, to intercede for the righteous who live amongst sinners. And of course, it follows in the way that the Holy Spirit has structured this chapter. It follows inevitably. If you're serving Christ, if you're listening to Christ, if you're living a holy life and imitating Christ, intercession will be as natural to you as breathing, as it was for the father of the faithful, as it was for the friend of God. God has revealed to him, because of this intimate relationship he has with Abraham, he has revealed to him in verses 17 and in verse 20 that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. But because Abraham's a holy man, Abraham has a holy concern. He has a holy concern for the inhabitants of Sodom, and he has a holy confidence that he can petition his God for them, that he can plead for their deliverance. Oh, Lord, if there is some righteous men there, do not destroy the city. Who was there? Well, Abraham knew that Lot was there. His family, sons, daughters, their wives, their husbands, their servants, but there may have been more. He didn't know how many was there. So he starts this intercessory prayer at 50. This is the, the first formal example we have in Scripture of an intercessory prayer being made. So he begins there in verse 24 with 50. Now, contemporary historians and scholars debate how many were in Sodom, the population of Sodom, but say it was 100,000, 50. He pleads for 50 souls. If there are 50 righteous, do not destroy Sodom. And by the end of verse 32 there, he's down to 10. This isn't impertinence. This is not over-familiarity. This is what we call importunity in prayer. Persistence. Wrestling. You see, in our very reverent way that comes easily to the holy man who lives the life of practical faith, intercession is a natural thing to do. He is testing the Lord as the Lord gives warrant in his word. Try the spirits. Try me and see if I will not open the windows of heaven. Are we trying the Lord? Abraham did. Abraham was saying, how far can I prevail with God? Interceding for sinners. 
interceding for the righteous in Sodom. It's a fervency, isn't it? In humility. We see that in the structure. Oh, let not the Lord be angry. He knows his place. But he's pushing and he's pleading and he's interceding and he's fervent and he is not going to give up. What a warrant for the Christian, because we see here a clear example of God graciously showing that he will be prevailed upon, that he will be petitioned. Those who are persistent, those who will intercede, his mercy waits to be bestowed upon sinners. It's very personal, isn't it? A very personal exchange that we are given an insight into, intimate interceding between Abraham and God. But it's also very urgent because the situation is urgent. The situation for any that might be righteous in Sodom is urgent. Lot was his nephew. We know from a few chapters earlier that Lot had been carried away by the four kings, by King Hederleomer. And Lot had been saved by Abraham's intervention by gathering his armed servants and going and destroying the kings. But here, Lot is saved not by Abraham's intervention in weapons of warfare. Lot is delivered by Abraham's intercession in heavenly warfare, in prayer. Abraham did prevail. He prevailed, but only found four. The Lord only found four. He prevailed because the Lord said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. But the Lord didn't find ten. Only four came out of Sodom. It's our duty. It's our Christian duty to intercede in prayer. Again, you know far better than I do in this island how long prayer meetings took. Prayer meetings till two, three in the morning. Our prayer meetings are over in an hour. It's not just here. I can't even have a prayer meeting where I am. Not enough praying men. When the Lord's praying men get together, is there a desire to pray? Don't leave the island. Don't leave Scotland, Lord. Raise up righteous men. It's very trendy in the liberal church, isn't it? To have prayer warriors, worship leaders, and all sorts of other nonsense. All the Lord's people are prayer warriors if they exercise that Christian duty to be so. Do we exercise the duty of interceding for our own families, 
for the unconverted in our own families? Or is it just a quick prayer in the morning and a quick prayer in the evening? Or do we wrestle? Do we wrestle for the inhabitants of Stornoway? Do we wrestle for the inhabitants of all our communities? Pour upon us, O Lord, the spirit of grace and of supplication. So there's the four Christian duties that I suggested to you that we see in this chapter. The duty of serving, the duty of listening, the duty of holy living, and the duty of interceding. And as we conclude, I would say this. As Christians, our duties to God must always take precedence to duties to ourselves. He must increase. We must decrease. We often say it, and we often read it, but do we actually do it? Do we put ourselves first? Because if we are following the faith of Abraham, and if we are following Christ's example, Christ will have the preeminence in all things. Does your Christianity get squeezed? Squeezed into little segments. An hour and a quarter on Sabbath morning and an hour and a quarter on Sabbath evening and an hour on Thursday evening. Is it compartmentalized? Or does your holiness and your love for Christ and the fulfillment of your Christian duties fragrance everything that you do? a golden thread running throughout your lives. What was the first thing Abraham did that we read there in verse 2? He bowed. He bowed in humility. He bowed in reverence. And it's very difficult for us as Christians because in the world that we live in, man is elevating himself higher and higher and higher. It's the worship of me. The worship of social media. What can I put on about me? What am I doing? Well, that's not the way that Abraham lived. Abraham bowed before the Lord, served him as hard as he could, listened to what the Lord said, led a holy life, and then spent hours praying for the intercession of sinners. So I would put it to you that nothing should be more important to Christians than bowing before Christ in worship, serving Christ with all our heart, listening to everything that he says in his word and applying it to our lives, therefore being enabled to live a holy life and being much involved in prayer. And there's two reasons. The first reason is quite simple. We are so commanded by God. This is the way. Walk ye in it. God commands us. To live lives that honor Christ. But the second is perhaps even easier to understand. If you don't want to serve Christ, listen to Christ, live like Christ, and worship Christ in this life, why would you want to spend the endless ages of eternity with him? Because that's what we'll be doing if we are Christ this morning. We'll be serving him in heaven. We'll be listening to him. No 
useless preacher in between, be listening to Christ in heaven, living sanctified, holy lives made perfect in holiness, and singing praises to the Lamb. But let us go forth from this service seeking to apply these Christian duties that Abraham exemplifies for us in this chapter. May the Lord bless his word to us. Let us pray. O Lord, we thank thee that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable to us. Give us willing hearts, malleable spirits. Take away our rebellious streaks and our stiff necks, and may we be more conformed to the image of him who has saved us from death and taken us from darkness to life. We know that even when we do our very best, even when we do all that thou hast commanded us to do, we remain unprofitable servants, but we thank thee for the intercession of the one at thy right hand, who is the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king, whose work is well-pleasing and entirely acceptable unto thee. We stand in him. We plead his merit. We plead his blood. We seek his glory in all that we do. We ask thee, O Lord, that Thou would bless thy word to preacher and hearer alike and be pleased to forgive our sins and holy things and all that was said and done amiss. Take us to our homes in safety. May the glory be Christ's alone. Forgive our sins for Jesus' sake. Amen.